0: If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask a guest, go to masterleadership.org for more information. Machine learning, AI, and analytics applications are expanding rapidly, including in traditional businesses that are not all equally prepared for the change. Keith McCormick has produced machine learning solutions for 25 years. In the past eight years, Keith has focused on mentoring analytics leaders and their executives to navigate this change and make their analytics team more productive. A new generation of data scientists is graduating from thousands of college degree and certificate programs, hundreds of which didn't exist just five years ago. Who will lead them? in the short term they will be led by business leaders that are trained in other disciplines in the medium term some of these young data scientists will have to become leaders themselves with everyone's focus squarely on technology and not on people Too few are asking the critical questions of how to mature this field and put structures into place that will allow these new teams to thrive and create value for their organizations. Drawing upon decades of building these machine learning solutions, it's Keith's job to remind his clients that machine learning solutions are ultimately there to create positive change with their organizations, using math to solve people problems. A typical client is a senior manager or VP of analytics. Working together, Keith and his clients hire the team members, train them to stay focused on organizational change, and educate their senior leadership on deriving the optimal value out of their efforts. Welcome, Keith McCormick. How are you? Good morning. Uh, good morning. We are yeah. so happy to have you on our podcast. Are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am. Great. So, Keith, tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now.
1: Well, you know, as uh, I was reflecting on this a bit, one of my earliest, you know, adult memories is I remember I had to give a talk in uh, high school, and I'm kind of a quiet, reflective guy, and I was rather shy when I was in high school, and I just prepared and prepared and prepared for this talk, <laughs> you know, and I think it was only supposed to be five minutes, but I, I went more than a half hour, and it really was an experience for me having my peers look to see what kind of intellectual adventure I'd been on preparing for this talk and something connected in me about that. And I've always been drawn to teaching. So there was a time, in fact, I contemplated seriously K through 12 teaching, even looked into that. And then uh, <laughs> I know that that's uh, been an area that you've worked in you know, your whole career. And, and then- yes. School psychology actually was something that I contemplated. So, this is really something that I returned to again and again. And then, as I got into my 20s after undergrad, I thought, well, maybe PhD and being a professor is the way that I can, you know, scratch that itch. And I got an opportunity to be a software trainer. And I'm sure there'd be some folks that would be listening that wouldn't necessarily think of a software trainer as being a leadership role, but, you know, very similar to that experience, you know, when I was younger, I would prepare like crazy for these classes, you know, not just the point and click of what I had to show, but the background context of the techniques, you know, these are techniques, as you can guess, like linear regression and, you know, some of the fancier machine learning stuff. And I realized that these folks were turning to me for mentorship. And I took that very seriously and did that for the longest time. So because that was meeting that psychological need that I had to mentor and teach, I never did go back to grad school, but I did that for many, many years. And I think it's led directly into the more thought leadership and the mentorship of analytics leaders that I do now. And there have been some times during my career where my leadership role has been more formal. For instance, I was on an army scholarship when I was in college, but you would think as hierarchical as the army is, you know, that the lesson that you would draw from that is that, you know, it's all about chain of command and your formal title and so on. But it's not that different really from the kind of leadership you experience in the classroom. It's really about mentorship and inspiring folks. And, you know, even though in the military you have this formal rank and I mean, you're literally wearing it on your clothing, you know, mm-hmm. but it's really about reaching out to people and inspiring them because ultimately that's the only thing that's going to get a group of folks headed in the same direction.
0: You know, I love that you think that way because we've all been in trainings or workshops, important information, but it dies because the delivery and how you connect with your audience isn't there and that happens much more often than not. And it happens a lot in education. I love that you touched on that because that is seriously important. And I was reading through your leadership statement, and one of the things that grabbed me was when you talk about how to mature this field and put structure into place that will allow new teams to thrive and create value for their organization. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of maturity as a leader.
1: Sure. So this gets to something that I'm I'm sure we're going to talk about at some point, which is, you know, some of the things that concern me in my industry as a data scientist, but I don't think it's just this year or this particular period. I think many industries go through cycles like this and in data science right now, the focus is very much on technology. If you can check off the technology boxes then you're ready for a career in data science. And I have some colleagues, including colleagues, that I admire in many ways, but they'll you know, have these LinkedIn posts, uh, become a data scientist in 30 days, become a data scientist in 90 days. And I remember when I was at the 10-year mark, I've been doing about 25 years now. When I was at the 10-year mark, I started to get that feeling that I had figured this out. And I'm so glad that I shook off that feeling. (laughs) And I haven't felt that way since. Because this is not, you just check off the boxes and you're ready to go. You have to have life experiences. I mean, just from a practical standpoint, you have a young data scientist who's doing a project for, you know, some senior VP that's perhaps some 30 years older than them. It's not just about the technology. It's about connecting with that individual and understanding that what you're trying to do is organizational change. So, you need some life experience to be able to pull that off. That's not just stay up all night reading a programming book.
0: No. You know, and in the space that you play in, right, data science, it's very heady. And so, The difference with that in leadership and when you're ready to connect, you know, when you want to connect with other people is that it has to drop down to your heart, your social emotional skills. And sometimes that could be hard for people that are in their heads. I find the same thing happens in education. We value so much head knowledge and cognitive development that We believe that people who have a PhD or who have a master's are ready for leadership. And that is so far from the truth um, because there's so much more training that needs to happen. And one of the things that comes to mind, Keith, is humility. And that's what you addressed when you said that you thought you figured it all out and then you stopped, right? Part of that is humility. I value that so much because from that space, then you can expand and learn and grow. Now. Tell us about your organization and how we can reach you.
1: I wear a number of hats, but absolutely the best way to keep up with what I'm up to and what's on my mind is to follow me on LinkedIn. One of the career twists and turns that I've had within just the last three or four years was in uh, 2017, I had my first LinkedIn learning course come out. And that was a chance for me to take some of the things that I've learned over the years and reach a wider audience. So because I have content on the LinkedIn learning platform, I've become very loyal to the LinkedIn platform and I'm on there almost every day. So that's the best way to reach me.
0: So I imagine there are many Keith McCormicks, maybe. Oh, yes, there are. So How can we drill down and get you?
1: That's an excellent question. But I got lucky in that I must have been the first Keith McCormick to figure out that you could request your LinkedIn URL. You know, I'm not one of those crazy LinkedIn URLs that's like Kay McCormick and a bunch of numbers. I'm uh, Keith McCormick on on LinkedIn.
0: Thank you. Now, currently we're in the process, who knows, of recovering from the global pandemic, COVID-19. How has that affected you?
1: It's made me turn inward, I don't think in a bad way, but just kind of reflect on where I am at my career. I have been traveling almost nonstop, other than this COVID-19 experience that we've all shared together, since the winter of 97, 98. That's quite a few years ago now, and my travel percentage has consistently been up around 85% all those years.
0: Wow, big shift.
1: This is the most... In fact, at 10 months now, it's, it's hard for me to believe. It's mind boggling for me. Um, it's 10 months in a row that with, you know, other than going to the grocery store to visit the friends that I've been working from this um, house, which I love, but that for more than 20 years, I was only here three or four days at a time, just long enough to unpack, pack again and, you know, jump on a plane. So that's been a powerful experience for me. No one would look back at 2020 and really associate anything particularly pleasurable about it. They're just the not knowing and the vicariously watching all of the, you know, awful things that families have had to go through. But I think fate just handed me a situation where I had almost no choice but to reflect on where I was headed. And, you know, maybe it's not so bad as I enter my early 50s that I'm more selective about my travel, you know, and that I kind of choose my battles, as it were, and think about how I want to spend the last 20 years of my career.
0: So you're forced to be still.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's not a bad thing. Although, you know, it feels like a bad thing at first, because I get you, I'm a doer, I take action right away. But to be still, I've had to learn that and it is the path to wisdom. So thank you for sharing that. Now, What quotes, advice, or practice has helped you most during this crisis?
1: Well, you know, when I get an introspective time like this, like sometimes around the holidays, that's what's been funny about COVID is that when I found out in March that I'd have two months in a row that I'd be home, that I could almost just be quiet and you know, celebrate. Okay, well, I get a break from the road. How am I going to spend that? How am I going to invest that time? How am I going to make a positive investment? So when I was still a freshman, actually, I mean, I was really just a kid. I met a woman named Mary McCauley, which is not going to be a name that more than likely going to be familiar to anyone, but she was Isabel Myers' collaborator when the last 10 years of Isabel Myers' life, who's the woman that wrote the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. So long story short i met her at a conference and i ended up using the mbti on an undergraduate thesis project that i had to do when i was a sophomore she was uh, kind of what would be professor emeritus age at that point and i was just shy of 20 but we stayed in touch almost weekly for more than 10 years so that definitely made me a young fan you know so not just the kind of MBTI stuff that you see on the internet like what Harry Potter type are you <laughs> you know okay. type stuff but this kind of more deeper analytical psychology type stuff that's what I'll turn to often when I get a chance to have quiet times like this so you know there's a couple of Jung quotes that I'm fond of but basically what I'll do is I'll sit and I'll say well okay this is my chance to kind of introspect and think about where am I my psychological growth? You know, Jung would argue that in midlife, you're using parts of you that you didn't attend to when you were younger. And I like being able to check in every once in a while. It's obviously very different from my data science life. So that's why I find it very renewing to sit down and think about that from a psychological standpoint. Where am I now that I wasn't 10 years ago?
0: Mm-hmm. And you can do interviews, right? Were you doing interviews before when you were traveling so much?
1: Excellent point. You know, I wasn't. What I was thinking about is I said, well, I'm not going to be doing the kind of networking. And I was thinking, well, you know, in 2020, I'm not going to have any of that. How can I move that part of my professional life online? And one of the ways that I chose to do that was to seek out opportunities to be on a podcast. You know, I think there were probably a lot of folks in 2020 that said, you know, wasn't expecting COVID to happen, but it has, I'm going to go ahead and start a podcast. If I thought about that, I didn't do so for more than about two minutes because you research it for just a moment and you realize what a huge amount of work it is and how it can take a year or two to really have a podcast reach its potential. So I said, you know, Keith, I'm not even going to contemplate that until I've been a guest on podcasts for at least a year. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Let me see if for a
1: whole year, you know, I can be a guest on podcasts and then I'll contemplate something like that. So you're right. Very insightful. <laughs> you articulated it better than I could myself, that that was one of the ways that I said, I'll work on something that perhaps has been neglected, which is a way of networking that's uniquely my own and not just what happens when you're physically in a building with a couple thousand people.
0: So Keith, thank you. Now, as a lifelong learner. What are you learning right now?
1: I got a little carried away back last spring. I took books that had been in my wish list for some time, but that were too ambitious, too physically big, but I've been chipping away at that, you know, all year. So, I've been reading a lot on kind of the context behind machine learning and AI. You know, things that people will be familiar with, like Turing and the, you know, and the Turing test, you know, if a computer fools you into thinking that it's a human, what does that really tell you? You know, is it really thinking or not? And there's some interesting philosophical questions around that. So that's just not the kind of thing you bring on a plane, you know? (laughs) So this past year has given me a chance to do that kind of work. That's been important for me. I hadn't done that kind of thing since I was younger and I needed to return to that.
0: When we think of AI, there has to be a harmony with the consequences of using AI and machine learning. I'm glad someone's doing it. And I'm sure (laughs) a lot of people are, but I'm glad that you are. Now, Keith, when you think of leadership today, what most concerns you and what are you most hopeful about?
1: Well, this came up briefly earlier in our conversation, but I worry about the young people that are, it makes me feel old to say it that way. (laughs) But there is such a thing as being in a particular generation in an industry because you get trained a particular way and so on. So when I was contemplating a PhD in my late 20s and decided not to, there were a lot of reasons for that. But one of them was that this area that I had gotten interested in, data science, machine learning, and so on, didn't have PhD programs. They didn't exist back then. For instance, most of my colleagues you know, that are doing you know, really strong work do have master's and PhDs. I have neither, which is a bit unusual. We're not rare, the folks like me that are doing you know, data science with just a bachelor's but you know we might be 20, 25%, not the majority. But what that meant was on-the-job training was a respected alternative because there weren't a lot of formal programs. So what form did that take? That took a lot of mentoring. That meant that it was almost like being an apprentice carpenter or something like that. You'd have a more experienced person, you'd work alongside them as I look back, you know, some of my most rewarding professional moments have been when I got to the point where I was running a team and I'd have three or four people looking to me on a daily basis. You know, we'd meet every morning. What do we need to work on today to to make this project productive? So if you transition to the certificate programs and the X number of hours of this topic and certain number of hours of this other topic, and it becomes the technology checkbox then there's not as much of a professional motivation to seek out that mentoring because the feeling is, oh, I have this certificate, you know, or I've went through a boot camp. It's created age bias within my industry. And, you know, I'm not just talking about somebody that maybe is five years shy of retirement. So for, you know, financial reasons, a company doesn't want to hire them. That's been a problem, you know, for decades. But I have colleagues with PhDs with 30 years of experience that during the interview process were given a quiz. They were asked to recite, literally recite from memory a particular command and a programming language, which wouldn't have been used 25 years ago. And it's like, sorry, this isn't gonna work out. So I, I remember sitting there with the client, I said, are you purposefully trying to ensure that everyone on your team is 25 or younger? And I said, I have, I have no problem with young, ambitious, Well trained data scientists, but do you want your entire team to be that age? You don't want anyone with experience? And they said, Oh, no, of course not. I said, When was the last time that you had someone over 25 max out these Python tests? And worse than that, Lily, it never passes through the HR process. So the actual executive that is assembling the team never even gets to meet these wonderful, experienced people. Because they haven't checked off all the boxes, even though they might get a good performance, but they don't get a top performance on these technology hurdles that they have to jump over.
0: You know, too often we value skill over character and in your field, certainly skill is important, but someone with the experience in the field is valuable. And I love that you mentioned that here, because it also happens in education. You also spoke about mentorship, And I want to drill down here because mentorship is super important, but it also matters who you get mentored by or who you are as a mentor. You need to be someone who continues to grow, someone who has leadership skills around humility and around valuing others. I know too many stories of mentors who shouldn't be mentoring anybody because they pass down the same thinking. So, yeah, diversity is incredibly important. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, The
1: group think that you mentioned, uh, Lily, reminds me of something. I was talking to a young uh, data scientist once and his boss. So his boss came from a different area. His boss had more of a IT background. And all three of us were on the call together. So I spoke directly to the young data scientist and I said, you know, I'm somewhat putting you on the spot here because your boss is on the call, but I know that your boss is growing the team, you know, he's been allowed to increase the headcount of the team. So from your point of view, what skills do you think the team would benefit from that perhaps would complement your own? Who would be someone that you could collaborate with? and learn from. I was really trying to send a softball pitch his way, you know, for him to, in a very, I hope comfortable way, say, well, a skill that I'd like to have that maybe I haven't mastered so far would be this one. And I want to get that from somebody else. Well, I was so disappointed with this answer because he proceeded to basically say that, you know, if the team was going to have five people, that they all should be identical to himself. Goodness. I tried to do the best I could. Thank you to, for the work
0: you do. <laughs> to, invite,
1: <laughs> to invite a better answer. But oh. that was the answer I got. Wow.
0: Yeah. And I'm not surprised. You know what? I started this podcast because I wanted to up-level our leadership collectively. And so hopefully this will land on someone's ears, someone's heart, and maybe cause them to reflect. So thank you so much. Now, you can either take a question from a former guest... Or you can share a challenge, struggle, or failure that you learned from.
1: I'm curious about the first choice and how that works. Yes. So someone's asked a question. There's yep. a, kind it's, of a pool of questions. Yes, I do
0: have a pool of questions. So here we go. Catherine Taylor wants to know, what is the one quality you believe that you have yourself that is most important in making you a leader?
1: I think it's curiosity. It comes naturally to me. But that's what fuels the lifelong learning that we were talking about. Sometimes I think even my close colleagues that I would consider good friends think that I go down the rabbit hole with that lifelong learning a little bit, you know, but next thing you know, we'll be in a situation, maybe either a tricky situation or we need some context or we need to pause. Often you make your best decisions when you've thought things out and those little intellectual journeys that I take on topics that I don't know for a fact that are going to pay off, but I spend time on them anyway, will suddenly become very handy weeks or months down the road in ways that I don't anticipate. It's that curiosity that drives me to do that, but also makes it fun along the way.
0: I love curiosity. And by the way, that would make you a great podcast host. (laughs) I just want to say. All right. So, Keith, as a listener of this podcast, what is a question that you would like a future leadership guest to respond to?
1: I guess it's hard not to reflect on what we should be thinking about, you know, as leaders in our organizations and as mentors to our colleagues about Mm -hmm. how we're going to find our sea legs in this Mm -hmm. new normal when it comes. For the longest time, we all commuted to an office because that's what we had to do. And then in 2020, we all stayed home because we had to, but at some point soon, we're going to have a choice and how are we going to navigate that choice? So when going to the office and going to a conference is a choice, again, how are we going to navigate whether to return to the office or continue to work from home?
0: Great question. Thank you. Now, Keith, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: You know, there is. I have done a course for analytics leaders that I'm very, very proud of on the LinkedIn learning platform. And it's Introduction to Predictive Analytics for Executives. And you would ask me earlier, the best way to find me, you know, is on LinkedIn. But even more easily than that, is you can go to the LinkedIn learning platform, a lot of folks have access to that that don't know that they have access to it because their LinkedIn memberships often include it. And I'm the only Keith McCormick that's an author on LinkedIn Learning. And again, it's Introduction to Predictive Analytics for Executives. And I put a lot of thought into that course because I knew that it couldn't be three, four hours long. This had to be like an hour long. And what do senior executives need to know about people that do the kind of work that I do?
0: Fantastic, Keith. I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Thank you, lot. Have a great day. In closing, here's a quick message